Hello, everybody. This is David Goldsmith, and welcome to Redefining Tomorrow. Today, we are going to be exploring the title of the program, Tribalism is a Luxury We Can No Longer Afford in the Age of AI. And we have a good friend and a great guest on the line. We have Dakai. How are you doing, Dakai, today? I'm great. How are you? Good. Good. I'm excited for this interview. Uh, Very short intro as always Dakai and I met in Hong Kong we've part of similar circles we've had a, a variety of dis- discussions that have to do with the topic of AI and the one person I'd call on if we were talking about AI is Takai he's was one of the 17 ACL founding fellows in terms of his skill set and his capabilities he was in the He's been in the field of AI for natural language processing and translation, where he pioneered the whole space. And today, if you look around, he didn't commercialize it, but it's being used in commercialization from Badu and Google. And there was just an announcement today, and I got to move my screen to see it, that there's a uh, an AI ethics advisory council, and Dakai is a part of that. So... I am excited to hear what you've got going on and to to talk about tribalism and where we should go with it. So do you have a full few bullet points that we're going to cover today? Uh, yeah, I think it would be uh, really cool uh, if we would talk first about um, sort of resource scarcity uh, allocation and, and bounds in the context of the uh, world order that AI is emerging in. Okay. Um, and uh, a couple of other uh, bullets uh, that we might hit on would be uh, artificial children. Okay, I like that. Um, maybe next, uh, artificial gossips. And yep. after that, uh, maybe um, mindful AI. Wow. Mm, sort right. of like, you know, this will all tie into... Uh, the overarching theme of um, why we need empathetic AI. And okay, is there another uh, one? We got another one. You have a fifth one here. Well, that's sort of it, I suppose. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, all right. So let's start with this first one: resource scarcity, allocation, and bounds. Teach me something. Tell me something that we that I need to hear because I'm I'm excited to find out where this is going. So I think you know. These days, having having done a lot of work in pushing machine learning approaches into AI systems for for uh, processing human language uh, stuff that you know uh, the the first web tra- translation AIs uh, such as Google Translate uh, or Microsoft Translate or Baidu Translate that sort of stuff um, and and having been doing this for decades literally. Um, I've also been increasingly aware and concerned of the impact that these sorts of uh, AI and language technologies are having on what used to be uh, a somewhat stable world order and is increasingly looking to get massively disrupted in ways that Humanity is uh, simply not prepared for. Um, 
And and when I, I obviously you have to explain that to me. Okay. <laughs> AI is moving into places that is massively disrupting, and humans are not prepared for it. Okay, we did we just hit on the apocalypse? Uh, well, you know, yeah, yes, and no. I mean, the thing is that the apocalypse that you hear about in in you know sort of the popular sphere that that Hollywood narrates to us and and you know that viral news sort of tells us about is is not the apocalypse i'm talking about you know it's not terminator skynet uh ex machina you know kind of like oh the the robot overlords are going to destroy humans and take over um that's not what i'm talking about but i think there is something uh potentially apocalyptic that we we need to get ahead of uh which is us humans ourselves armed with ais um the you know we have as a species we have long made the best possible use of the technologies that we invent and the current world order is built upon characteristics of that it's evolved over time obviously especially in the last uh several millennia we've done an awful lot and the order has changed but compared to what's coming um the amount of change that we've seen in the last couple of millennia still pale in comparison so let me try to uh, explicate this a little bit yes i'm sitting here saying Okay, we got a lot of, uh, I think, hyperboles. We've got a lot of hypotheses flying through. What's going? I, I'm trying to see what you're seeing. So, uh, the current world order that we live in has evolved under three sort of points. It, it stands on three legs. And the first one is resource scarcity. And resource scarcity uh, occurs across the entire um, spectrum of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, do you know what, what I mean by that? Do- I, I think I do. And I, I'm, I, are you talking resource scarcity when it comes to humans and food and being able to, uh, to move up the hierarchy? Are you also talking about resource scarcity, for example, on planet Earth? Yeah. So, uh, you know, the, um, that you can have, resource scarcity at all sorts of levels uh, from the physiological, you know, sort of just food, water, housing. Uh, uh, well, housing belongs sort of at the next level, safety, you know, sort of security. Um, and then the next level you have love and belonging, right? And, and so each of these levels, it, as, as people sort of attain uh, a level where they have met the needs to a reasonable extent that they start moving up this hierarchy right yeah. and if you've achieved the love and belonging then the next thing people need is esteem self-esteem respect of others right and if they've achieved that then they move to self-actualization at the, at the top of the pyramid which is you know sort of uh, about things being meaningful yeah um and so uh that's kind of um you know it, it's it's a spectrum of needs that 
through the evolution of human history, uh, it's all been about humans finding these the resources needed for these needs scarce, right? They and and humans fight uh, on a daily basis to do better at at meeting those needs. Yep. So that's that's sort of the first leg uh, that our systems evolved under. The second leg is resource allocation. And the resource allocation has been uh, based on competition. And, you know, this is the basic structure of evolution, for example, right? But what is competition? Competition is based on um, a mindset of what your in-group, so you have some in-group, and it is competing against out-groups. That is how competition is set up. And the reason why uh, we've evolved resource allocation based on competition is because it's well known in psychology and in politics um, that fear is the strongest motivator. Uh, Now, there are many, many theories and models of emotions. Um, It's still an area that is being actively studied. There's no resolution to it, but pretty much every single model of emotions. uh, Fear is the axis that is by far the strongest. That is the one universal in across all the current psychological theories of emotion. Um, I would agree with you. (laughs) In Washington, D.C. or any such place, everybody knows that in order to get any legislation passed, you have to invoke some kind of fear because otherwise nothing moves. Yeah. And, um, and so the problem with this um, is that this kind of mindset is self-perpetuating, this competitive game mindset. Um, and there is a strong tendency toward winners take all. It increases inequality. Uh, and it increases inequality if left unchecked across pretty much all of Maslow's needs. Um, and, and the problem here is that in order to win at this game, you have to dehumanize or de-demonize the outgroups. Uh, so it, this, this sort of mindset is what allows members of one tribe or, or one group, one nation, to kill the outsiders that they think are threatening their own in-group collective. I and, just watched something on a video yesterday or the day before on on political, this type of situation happening where in politics, what you want to do is you want to dehumanize or you want to create any this sense of uh, unknowingness or fear that comes out of the situation. And if you do that, no matter who else comes up, you will never trust them. And it continues, and it's it creates the winners take all, demonizing the group. It's the resource allocation, and they were talking about in this situation the Green Deal in the United States, and they said no one really knows what it's about. No one's even talking about it. All they're saying is, see the Green, they're socialists. They're yeah. socialists. They're different than us. Right. And they keep on perpetuating that, which creates this sense of fear, which is self perpetuating. And even if the data is coming out. It no longer is something that someone's going to trust. 
Yeah, exactly. So you, so those tactics are are dehumanizing the outgroups. Um, they are allowing members of their own in-group to uh, to um, threaten the outgroups, uh, and and you know as things get extreme, to to kill the outgroups without any remorse. Mm-hmm. Um, now, uh, the problem is you know, that this is how humanity has evolved, right? Um, early attempts at civilization, uh, um, it's, it's been said, uh, survived competition from other groups only because of this kind of adaptation. Okay. And so, um, you know, what we get because of the dynamics that you just pointed out is that you have a larger and larger number of people who are losing from the winners take all games Mm -hmm. and this is increasing the inequality across maslow's hierarchy of needs so at the physiological level what people are fearful of is uh, it's fear of extinction at the safety level people are fearful of um, uh, mutilation at the love and belonging level people are fearful of rejection at the esteem level, they're fearful of humiliation. At the self-actualization level, they're fearful of meaninglessness. And so as you get more and more fear, people, more people losing out at, in, to a greater degree on the fear axis, the, that's when people lash out. Okay. Pretty much every... And yeah. I actually see, I see that happening in some cultures around the world already. Yeah, you you see it happening in cultures, uh, in situations where uh, you know entire countries have been subjected to this. Then then you know we see the dysfunction uh, and the violence that breaks out. And even in in wealthy countries, in the U.S., uh, you see individuals who have lost out on these lashing out with uh, you know mass mass murders. Yeah. Um, so this is sort of the second leg of the of the three-legged stool that our current system has been built on. And the third leg of the stool is resource bounds on destructive capacity. So the thing that has allowed us to survive until now is that even when losers in that game lash out, uh, you know, the, the worst times that it's gotten out of control were things like World War II. Uh, even in those times when the world war uh, began, we had not yet invented nuclear arms. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at the, at the close of world war two for several decades, it was only a very small number of big uh, nation states that had access to these weapons of mass destruction. Um, and so even under extreme in a, inequity stresses the individuals and non-state actors that had lost on the fear game could still only inflict limited damage when they lashed out okay see i it's an, obviously the more the i guess your power or military might which we're using nuclear as one of them the more that these are proliferating around the globe if someone is feeling as if they're a loser in this game 
they have the ability to lash out in a much different way than they could prior. Is that where we're going? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you, it, you know, uh, a few decades ago, there's only so much damage you can do with a knife or with bows and arrows or with a rifle. Uh, you know, you can inflict some local damage. Yeah. Um, even with a semi-automatic, uh, the damage is still localized. Um, the problem today is that this third leg of the stool is evaporating really quickly. And that is being driven by the advances in AI and robotics. When you say evaporating, it doesn't mean it's no longer valid or is it expanding because there's more capabilities. Yeah, the resource bounds are evaporating. Oh, the resource bounds. Okay, that's what I was trying to get at. Because use the word bounds, so that there's no longer a boundary that used to constrain individuals from or groups or nation states from doing anything, and today that's becoming nominal. Yeah, exactly. Okay. I mean, WMDs, weapons of mass destruction, used to require the resources at the nation state level, and yeah. that that helped to keep the balance in the world order that had evolved, albeit with high inequity and massive wars, but uh, humanity still survived. Now, fast forward today, back to today, we've got a situation where we've come to the end of an, the, the entire evolution of humanity up until now, where our survival has been depending on and enabled by our ability to outrun the destructive technologies that we invent. I, I don't know if you've seen the, uh, the short film that was produced by my friend uh, Stuart Russell, who's a professor at Berkeley, uh, together with the World Economic Forum. It's called Slaughterbots. Uh, no, I, I have not seen so, it. So it's worth watching because what it shows is a very realistic uh, scene of new arms that, that are, have been invented and are promoted, uh, which are uh, little small micro drones, but fleets of them, like thousands of them that can be produced inexpensively. Swarm technology. Uh, and each one carrying in that film a single shot uh, shaped charge. And so uh, these fleets can be produced almost by anybody uh, and in, a, in a very short number of years. You know, any disgruntled individual or small groups uh, of individuals, non-state actors, uh, could, could go into their basement and 3D print massive amounts of small drones armed with things like that or with bioweapons or chemical weapons. And so suddenly you have a situation where no longer are weapons of mass destruction confined to the control of, quote, responsible uh, nation states uh, that keep the balance. This is more like imagining a world where half the population of the of the earth is walking around with weapons of mass destruction 
And the question that we need to ask ourselves is, would you want to take your chances that absolutely nobody would hit their launch button? Oh, it's guaranteed they will. Yeah. It's, to me, it's not even a question. It's a it's a guarantee. It's like the Chinese uh, individual who just did the cloning of a baby. And I, I wrote and paid to think that <clears throat> if the technology is available, someone will use it. There's just no doubt. So, exactly. So, this the key question then is that we need to all be asking ourselves is what would cause a person to hit that launch button? Well, let me let me add uh, just this thought I was thinking as you were saying it. We've even compounded this resource bounds constructive or destructive capabilities because we add an element of uh, viralness, whether it be any form of internet media, any type of distribution. So you can have a destruction happen. Then you can show it and exponentially create even larger fear, which breaks down the legs. Correct. And this is, you know, this is the, the challenging nature of the problem that we're facing. I didn't mean to sound, sound all hyperbolic <laughs> as we were starting, but this is, this is a real challenge, the likes of which humanity has not faced before. Again, because resource bounds on destructive capacity used to keep things localized and in check. And, and the challenge is that we cannot just minimize the difficulties of tackling problems in human nature. As you've just said, right? Yeah. I mean, after all, fear is biologically evolved over millions of years. And yet at the same time, we we can't just, you know, stick our heads in the sand. We have to actually be cognizant of the constraints I've just mentioned and the timeline that we're on. Because AI evolution is racing along at an exponential rate. And meanwhile, human cultural evolution is still plodding along at the same old linear rate that it always has. And, and you see that in our current regressive trends toward the polarized politics, the parochial mindsets, and ultra-nationalism, uh, which are exactly what anticipated the world wars previously. Mm -hmm. That will doom us in this new era where the resource bounds on destructive capability have evaporated. We, yes. and, and so, uh, again, without wanting to sound hyperbolic, we, we simply can't afford under these constraints to be, to let ourselves be over constrained by incrementalism. Simply put humanity needs cultural hyper evolution at a pace never before witnessed merely to keep up with the hyper evolution of the destructive potential of the technology that is at is proceeding at that pace i i don't know if i said this in the last interview that i just did so i'm going to hope that i didn't say it in this one i've got two series i read this uh i i understand exactly what you're saying the challenges that as humans we're just incapable of communicating or working at the speeds in which 
any computer, not even AI, is capable of working at. And in this one series, you may have heard of it, called The Singularity, but it's a series about evolution and computers growing. And at one point, the computer system, I'm not going to go into the whole book, it's a series of four books, I believe it was. It was great, but the computers had shut down everything having to do with humans to be able to survive. Because they didn't need the food, water, shelter, transportation, communication, the same skill set uh, needs. And they were negotiating with humans at this one point. And they, the humans had one AI that dis- had to be the negotiator because the humans could not keep up with the speed of negotiation. And at one point, the humans had given this suggestion. What we'll do is over the next two years, we'll build enough computers so that you can have your home and we can have our home and we can live amicably. And the other computer system said, in those two years, it would be the equivalent of stopping us from 20,000 years of evolution. <laughs> so we can't wait two years. <laughs> and the analogy or the context was brought in that a dialogue between two humans, the two of us, in this time frame, I, it's not even terabytes, it's, it's so much information would have been transferred in a matter of uh, the time that we've been talking. So how do, how do, you, how do you say we have to have a cultural revolution where I'm still, still seeing the computer evolution expanding so much faster that humans won't be able to, to, to even meet this challenge uh, at the lowest level. Yeah. Um, not so much a cultural revolution. It's just hyper-revolution uh, of okay. our culture. And, you know, I think that, that those are, those are very much challenges that people are who are looking forward uh, a significant amount are thinking about. I was I was uh, one of a um, hundred uh, folks that sort of got cloistered uh, a couple of months ago in Puerto Rico at the beneficial AI uh, series that Max Tegmark runs, uh, and one of the debates that he asked us to do was to envision uh, what we would like for the future of humans. And there were four positions uh, taken by four of us. Uh, One of them was that humans should remain the way they are. The next one was that humans should uh, just go extinct. The third is that humans should upload. Uh, so, you know, you could like uh, imagine the AI simulations of you going into the cloud. And the fourth the, was like the singularity type conversion and being able to live within that in a different world, a different means. OK, um, well, the consciousness of the human was, is the idea there uh, yep. uh, gets uploaded. Uh, and then the fourth was that humans merge with AIs. And, and that that last one was the position I was defending. Um, Here's the problem, right? If humans are kept around, it will be more or less as zoo animals, as you've just described. Because uh, if humans are kept separate from the AIs and the AIs go their own way, they are going to be evolving so much faster than, you know, unaugmented humans uh, that uh, the only reason they would keep us around is kind of as pets. Yeah. Um, now, that doesn't sound too appealing to me. Um, the, the second option, is, you know, we're all dead. 
<laughs> doesn't sound too appealing. The third option, or, or they help us get there. Um, uh, I don't know that they need to help us get there. We do a fine job by ourselves. <laughs> okay. Yes. Um, yeah, I. I uh, I will take that track also. The track also, yes, that that's valid. Um, the the third option of uploading to the cloud, you know, it's sort of like, well, okay, I know there are some unsaid assumptions, uh, and uh, we'll, we can delve into the theories of consciousness later. But uh, you know, fundamentally, I think that option is more like building a simulation of of David. Uh, Which and, is, if you want to look at the the matrix, yeah, where the human body was used as an as an energy source, yet the mind was put into the cloud to be able to keep the body alive. We could kind of say the body disappears and the mind is still kept alive. Yeah, and I mean, virtual world. You know, those are great, fun fantasy uh, stories to uh, just explore and be entertained by. But you know, fundamentally building a simulation of david it's still going to be you know a, a different entity a simulation of david uh yep. even if you had a genetic twin it would not be david um right. and so uploading uh that simulation to the cloud uh well that's all great i've got a david avatar in the cloud to deal with but but poor david is still dead uh right. so that doesn't sound so appealing either okay uh and so, so, so that so, leaves uh, us with the only option, which is let's merge as best as we can over the long haul, keeping as much of humanity as possible without suffering the weaknesses of the first three approaches. And yes, and, and this goes to the question that you were raising uh, just before this little digression, which is that it's it's really hard given the bounds of human nature to see how humans have the means to enable the desperately needed pace of hyper evolution of our culture that that we need just to survive uh and it may well be that ai is the only solution to the problems that ai is creating that and i i get that there's I, I don't know if you read the book, but the first book that I read before I met Ray Kurzweil was The Age of Spiritual Machines. Mm -hmm. And I believe the argument was that we'll eventually become machines in one way, shape or form. And mm -hmm. I have taken it a little bit further to say that many of us are already machines. And, we'll, and, and let's use that as a broad brush. Our bodies, human bodies, have been inundated or artificially adapted by putting machinery in this. So a piece of machinery would be, for example, you had a uh, filling in your mouth. Sure. 500 years ago, you'd be dead without that tech. Sure. If we have glasses, without glasses 500 years ago, or 5,000 years ago, you would have been killed by a predator yeah. or you wouldn't have been able to survive. If you look at many humans, not all of us, but we have either a bolt or a patch or this, and I've had people argue and I had this in a religious sense in, I was in the middle middle of the United States and we're having this discussion. I said, no, we are becoming machines already. We, if you take out the pieces, we might not be able to survive or would not have survived. And during the conversation, the father of a public company that he's actually, the father of the kids that were also there, 
of this public company, you you hear something near him go beep, 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 beep. And two sons jump up and they go over and they change out the battery pack that supplies his heart pumping. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. And, and I didn't know he was on this machine, but they changed out the battery pack. And he looked at me after this whole religious, where does it go and how does it stand and every this whole discussion for an hour. And he looked at me and he said, I guess you just proved your point. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, the thing is that, again, I think a lot of the knee jerk reaction against the idea that we're gradually becoming machines uh, is, is, again, just driven by fear rather than reason. I mean, you know, pacemakers or have become so or bored. So, yeah. Uh, well, I mean, that's what I mean. Right. I mean, yeah. we people have already gotten used to these ideas that you're talking about. Uh, like pacemakers or, you know, people developing artificial kidneys or whatever or that artificial hips or yeah. knees. Yeah. Um, and, and so as more and more people have them, then you notice, Oh, gee, funny the the fear seems to be diminishing. Um, yeah. and, uh, you know, that, that is a sort of culture maturity that I think we do. I think people need to realize that the knee jerk fear reactions, uh, are, are actually, uh, not so um, healthy in the sense that, uh, again, if you succumb to that kind of reaction, then you're succumbing to the same kind of fear uh, that creates the problems. And we have to like sort of get ourselves above that and understand that, gee, when your mother is surviving because of a pacemaker, um, or, you know, things like that, that or it's stint. really not so oh, yeah. bad. Yeah. You, you, you shouldn't be, uh, just following this knee jerk. Oh, we want, we want nothing artificial. Um, you know, when, I think when it hits close to home, like say a parent or a child and their lives are at stake, that's when people finally push themselves out of their shell, uh, uh and, and realize maybe this uh, fear of technology is not really all that there is, right? There's, I, I, can I, I'll add to that, that we went from mainframes to desktop computers, to laptops, to mobile phones. And while it's a separate entity from us today, some people have done implants. We are this machine, mobile phone does position itself is our merging with who we are absolutely how we work where we go what we do and the ai that's in it determining how we get to locations who we connect with in our networks and circles what medicines we take it memorizes and learns uh, as uh, i don't know if you're going to get into it as a child it's learning to be our ai i mean um at the same time uh, this is this is the other part of the gradual merging of humans and machines, um, which is that you already have uh, not only the physical merging when we're talking about pacemakers or artificial hips or whatever. Um, there is also at the informational knowledge level, the the mental processing level, a merging that has already been happening for years uh and the young generation 
actually has never ever uh, known uh, an environment, a world without that. Uh, which is that you know many of us can no longer remember phone numbers. Uh, I, I used to be spectacular at that. Uh, I, I can't. For the <laughs> I life wasn't. Of me so do that I'm anymore. glad I have a phone. Um, the um, w- uh, you know, I used to have a sense of spatial orientation. Um, now, if you take away, you know, my Google Maps, uh, I have no idea where I am or how to get where I need to go. Um, you know, like people, like when I drive along, I, I'm just like on autopilot following the the, the GPS. Um, you don't even have to pay attention. You're just I don't. left, right, no, left, right. You get it's there. It's all moved from conscious, you know, system two mental processing down to uh automatic unconscious uh system one mindless uh yeah uh following because half of my brain is already uh been reallocated to this uh ai this this device uh there was uh, a news item i don't know last year or something where uh this guy had landed after a very long flight uh, in Reykjavik in Iceland. And uh, he rented a car. Uh, he was very tired. He uh, punched in the street address of where he needed to go to in Reykjavik. He started driving, followed, following this thing. 12 years later, uh, sorry, 12, <laughs> not years, not that bad. 12 hours, <laughs> like, wow. 12 hours later, uh, he um, he's at... Uh, <laughs> You know, in in the Arctic, you know, in Great Circle, because it turns out there is there happens to be another street in Iceland uh, of the same name up there. And he didn't right. even pay attention to it. The, yeah. the, this is what is is happening to us: is that you know our brains are really, really good. They're really plastic. You know, and really good at rewiring themselves around uh, the information landscape. I, I don't know if you've seen these um, uh, experiments where you can put like uh, goggles on on subjects on humans that use mirrors so that everything in the world looks upside down. Uh, oh no! I haven't so heard that imagine much. that you put those goggles on and like just try to imagine for a moment what it would be like to try to operate in that environment. You know, upside down or or left right inversion. Say, yeah, everything right. in everything you do in a, in a different mode. Like, like you imagine if you were trying to pick up something, you like everything would just be messed it's up. Not there, right? Yeah. We've, we've tried doing that. You you get that if you're trying to operate in a mirror, right? Like you have trouble sort of um, uh, getting your hand to go in the right direction. Um, well, it turns out if you just leave them in those goggles for a couple weeks. They'll figure it out. So they don't even notice that everything is upside down anymore. They think everything is right yeah. side up. And and that's that's because our we have an interpretation that what we're seeing through our eyes is actually what we're seeing. It's not an electronic, it's not a pulse, it's not a signal, just like our ears. We think we're hearing, but we're not really hearing. We're hearing a vibration a vibration of atoms against our ears or sound vibrations against our ears, and that in turn gives us the impression of a sound that our brain interprets. And we don't think that way. We believe we are actually seeing and hearing the way we are. Uh, so, so, you know, brains are just really, really good at rewiring uh, when the information landscape changes. Uh, 
Um, and, uh, and you, you, oh, I strong. That we are going to find out that young generation who have never known the world without internet and increasingly have never known a world without smartphones next to you all the time, uh, a world without, you know, Google or, um, or maps or any of the other things that we've come to depend on, including social media and the constant feed of AI chosen information for you to be accessing. Um, I, I, so, the, so your you know, your take was the merge the merge on AI, and and I could see where you're going. I, I don't, and I, so we can pull back on this. I don't know if you've seen the video or know of the individual. I think he was out of the UK in the 1980s. I think late the 80s or early 90s. He took a chip and put it in his forearm that allowed him to be able to manage his home, turn on lights, turn off lights, simple tech. We want to use that term uh, loosely. And they put it in his forearm and it worked. It worked fine. And before he undid it, what he wanted to do was he hooked it up to his wife with a set of sensors on her head. And he thought things and she felt it and she thought things and he felt it. But the real surprise is when they went to remove it, the nerves had already integrated into the chip mm. and that was in the late 80s early 90s so to to kind of reinforce this merging with ai uh i see the other ones as kind of a challenge the big question i have for you or my thought goes to just 7.5 billion people there's a lot of people who are not going to yeah. be missing out on this well, um, I, I don't know about that. The penetration of smartphones is actually uh, insanely remarkable. Uh, okay. You know, you, you have large swaths of the developing world where, you know, people don't even have um, their needs met at the, at the uh, foundational two levels of Maslow's hierarchy, right? They, they're, they're constantly uh, literally... Uh, placed at in life or death risk situations uh, constant and uh, they lack the basic food and water and uh, and so forth needs um, or they're in an environment where security is just non-existent um, yep and and so despite that it is amazing that the you know that without landlines without houses whatever they still have a phone okay we have done such a good job of commoditizing uh, that this is actually happening, you know, and that just shows some of the irony, right? Because we're talking about the second leg of the stool is how our system we, we, that we've evolved is based on, on, on resource allocation by competition that leads to inequality. Uh, the problem here is that the first leg of the stool, the resource scarcity mindset is what's blocking us from tackling the issues, uh, the, the, the effects that drive people to lose out horribly in the resource allocation game. The, the fact is that today, humanity actually has more than enough wealth uh, to, for everybody. We, we yes. actually can handle uh, taking everybody out of the, weir 
the worst ends of the fear spectrum on all of Maslow's hierarchy. But we are doing an absolutely lousy, abominable job of allocating those resources because we are still stuck in incrementalism in thinking, well, it's worked for us so far. It should continue to work. We just have to make small tweaks and we can continue to do resource allocation that way. And sorry, go ahead. So do you define, do you take this, these three legs and define them as a sort of tribalism? Well, I mean, tribalism is what you get when you encourage this in-group, out-group mindset, Mm -hmm. right? And so, so long as we remain committed to resource allocation based on fear, which is what, you know, in-group, out-group competition mindset is based on, right? So long as we think fear is the best way to do resource allocation, uh, then that is going to drive tribalism by definition. Right. Do you have a new word for the, the new age? For what? The new, the, the, where you're saying we merge with AI and, and we, we reallocate and redistribute and, and change our mindset and we move from this tribalism. Do you have a new word for the next iteration? Uh, I think it's going to have to be uh, a little bit um, it's going to have to happen in stages, right? The okay. first thing that needs to happen is that we have to overcome this resource scarcity mindset, right? And, and you know, again, the point that you made about the difficulty of getting human culture to evolve at anything but a snail's pace is absolutely valid, right? And so looking at this um, realistically, right? We're, we're, we're trying to avoid a dystopia, uh, but, but we're, we're trying to do it in a non-utopian way. That's the challenge, right? And so if yeah. we look at this really hard, the only way that we're going to be able to get out of this situation is if we address the resource scarcity mindset problem. You know what my question is? I mean, it's an obvious one. Yeah. How do you how do you do this? I mean, right. we're going in the opposite direction. I think oh, protectionism are. and and in countries uh, putting up borders and walls to stop uh, the the lack of understanding that we are a global world. I, uh, that video that was out of Germany, where they took all the food out of a grocery store that came from other countries, and the Germans could only eat German food. There was nothing on the shelves. Uh. Yeah, it, it, I don't know if you saw that video. It was fantastic. Yeah. So how how what's how do you do this? Uh. Well, I think maybe the place to start is to ask how how the opposite is actually happening. Okay. Because if you look at you know as you say what's been happening, it's been heavily driven by the emergence of AI uh, and, and related technologies, the, connect, the connectedness that the internet and, and mobile technologies have given us. We, we really don't have um, 
the kind of bounds that we used to have, again, on how quickly the tribalism can be propagated. So, uh, yes. So, so AI has been heavily driving the hyper acceleration of the the uh, tribalism. And and the question is, you know, first before we before we even think about how do we solve the problem of of getting AI to help us to overcome tribalism, I think we need to understand what's happening in how AI is actually until now been been heavily used to drive tribalism, right? Because we need to stop that in order to be able Ooh. to move forward. He, I, I, this is almost touching on, we won't go into the specifics, our conversation that happened in the, the Starbucks on the, the university is we have groups of individuals, and you don't need a lot, that are so rooted in yesterday that they don't see possibilities for tomorrow. And we also have groups that are so uh, excuse me when I say this, God, uh, this could come back and haunt me. Ignorant about what's going on in the world, that they're more, they know more about Beyonce or a professional athlete and their lives than they know where another country is or the differences between religions or that you can't. Uh, you can't touch somebody and get their gender preferences that we're talking about changing a large group of people that are so rooted. I've got my own thoughts. I've, what are yours? I mean, how do you, you're <laughs> saying you break this. Well, uh, I mean, again, right. To, to solve a problem, you have to understand it. Yeah. Um, you know, that's, that's why we're breaking down, uh, the, the issues with resource scarcity and allocation and resource balance on destructive capacity. Um, we need to understand the system so that we can understand where we can actually do something. And I think, I think probably the best way that we can understand, uh, the way that AI is actually, uh, integrating into our society to drive tribalism is something that goes way back in human civilization, which is uh, something unique to humans and universal to humans. It may, it, may, it may not be unique. It's probably in other species as well, but it certainly is universal in humankind. Um, right? and, and when you think about things that are universal to humankind, uh, there's all sorts of lofty things that people have have claimed. There's, you know, music and language and reason, or you know, uh, mastery of fire, or uh, cooking cuisine. Um, but but the thing is, I think one of the most universal things, sadly enough, is uh, gossips. Right. This is one of the bullets I wanted to uh, uh, touch upon. Okay. Because every single culture in our history has been plagued by gossips. And because of this, 
the religions of humanity through all the ages have proclaimed stricture after stricture against gossips. It doesn't matter if you if you look at Judaism, uh, it's all over the Old Testament. Uh, if you look at the New Testament, you'll find it all over. If you look at the Quran, you'll find it. If you look at the the Pali Canon for uh, in Buddhism, you'll find uh, you know the same. Uh, that's you know it's it's such a bad problem that all of our human civilizations everywhere have realized that they need to prohibit it because it's extremely damaging. And the thing is, of course, that was when gossips were just humans. But today, we've already got AIs populating increasingly uh, the space that we live in, especially uh, the space we just described, where we yeah. no longer survive without our screens. And, and so in this sort of a uh, space, we now have a situation where AIs have already, you know, become our assistants and our secretaries, our, our navigators, our dictation assistants, our translators, our shoppers our matchmakers, our, our journalists, our curators, news clippers, you know, house cleaners, chauffeurs, our hedge fund traders, our DJs, our customer service representatives, right? They've taken over all of these roles that humans traditionally take over. So really, it shouldn't be surprising uh, to realize that they've also taken over the role of our gossips. Yep, I can see it. So, you know, our cultures and our religions have been warning through the ages against idle chatter, warning against quarrels and conflicts and gossip and slander and condemnation and calumny, all the idle chatter. And now uh, we've gone and created chatterbots. Um, I And companies like Cambridge Analytica <laughs> that, uh, that literally played to the whole game and made it into a business yeah and um and it's not you know it, it, and it's many things uh it's it's far uh, more innocuous companies it's it's you know facebook it's twitter it's you know any any company that is propagating information online uh with the aid of ais that are deciding what information to propagate those have become artificial gossips yeah, and the algorithms that associated with them give them higher ranking and status, and uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Now, let me break this down a little bit. Okay, so uh, I don't know if you know that, like the difference. So, so gossips do two things, right? A gossip hears and a gossip speaks. And I don't know if you've heard the distinction between quidnuncs and gossip mongers. Uh, I've heard gossip mongers, but not quid monks. But why don't you oh. give me your definition of both? <laughs> it's a uh, quid nunc, N U N C. Uh, okay. it's, it's from Latin originally. 
uh, a quidnunc is a person who... My, my Latin's a little bit. <laughs> uh, it's, it's a person who seeks to know all the latest news or gossip. It's a busybody. Okay. Okay. Um, so it's a person who loves to hear gossip. That's a quidnunc. Whereas yeah. a gossip monger is a person who habitually passes on confidential information or spreads rumors. Right. So okay. that's a, a gossip who loves to speak gossip. Yeah. Now, um, it's artificial gossips are exponentially dangerous, uh, regardless of whether the gossip is true or false. It can be equally dangerous both ways. Um, yes. Right. And so when gossip is false or it's private, then our artificial gossip mongers are spreading fake news and spreading confidential information, just like human gossip mongers do, but exponentially more dangerously. Um, I, I was just being um, visited in Hong Kong, actually, and I just visited him in London earlier this week. Uh, my friend Robbie Stamp, who uh, who's a, the producer of the movie version of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams. Uh, Douglas Adams um, wrote that nothing travels faster than the speed of light with a possible exception of bad news, which obeys its own special laws. Yeah. So, you know, it's great. Now we've got artificial gossip mongers that give the gossip even more reach, more speed. Um, and gossiping fake news and confidential information obviously are super powerful ways to change society's views, even in the absence of evidence. Now, like for us to understand the consequences when AI enters this picture, it really doesn't take that much. So there was a recent study, um, I think it was conducted by UPenn and the City University of London, if I remember right. Uh, it suggests that if only a roughly 25% minority of a group, so one quarter of a group, starts spreading an opinion, that is enough to tip the majority to switch their opinions. I've heard this, yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, this was uh, reported in Science, I think, last year. So it's, um, uh, it's really important to realize that in this age of botnets, artificial gossips easily, easily account for more than 25% of our gossips. The artificial gossips push us past the tipping point for fake news to be able to change society's views. And, and just like humans, the artificial gossip mongers are weaponizing the power of suggestion. Just like human gossips, they're spreading unevaluated claims that are based on superficial appearance and are promoting hearsay rather than evidence. It's promoting stereotyping. Now, yes, if the gossip is true rather than false, um, then you also have artificial quidnuncs out there. These, these are artificial gossips who love hearing the gossip, right? And they're also gaining social power just like human quidnuncs do, right? That's, that's why human quidnuncs exist, because they, they love hearing this. It, get, it helps humans gain social power. 
but now the artificial quidnuncs are doing so exponentially more dangerously. And so we've got we've got the the uh, the artificial version and the human version. So if we're drawing a matrix, we've got the human doing one and the other, and then we've got the artificial version of that same thing. And going back to our speed of transmission of content and usability and leverageability and capabilities, you're saying that now we've got an exponentially powerful, I'm not even going to use Hiroshima or Nagasaki bomb, but something that could yeah. be extremely damaging. Yeah, this is, this is um, a, a really important instance of the general phenomena we, we talked about um, earlier, about how AI uh, is exponentially increasing the destructive capacity. And here, what's happening is the same exact effects of gossip mongers, both quidnuncs and gossip, uh, uh, gossip mongers, actually, uh, those dynamics still hold, just as they always have. But with artificial gossips around, both the artificial gossip mongers and the artificial gossip, um, the artificial quidnuncs are exponentially increasing okay. that that same dynamic. But even if we just don't talk, let's let's take that. I'm going to throw out an example, and I think that this kind of falls into it. And even in another space, last year or two years ago, someone accidentally posted that United uh, an old article that United Airlines was filing for bankruptcy for some reason, mm. and all of the algorithms in the space of the finance sector picked up on it right and the stock plummeted yeah i believe this is a true story i'm i i don't have time to look it up but i believe it's a true story and it plummeted but there was nothing going on with united yeah it just was someone had posted the wrong document yeah and that to me is gossip translating to financial markets yeah translating to jobs translating to everything totally. that is connected to travel, you name it, buying a ticket. Right. And, and here's the thing, like, this is how, here's how it happens, right? Uh, and why it happens. So um, one of the classics in social psychology is uh, a, a 1947 book. I think um, it's called The Psychology of Rumors. Um, it's by Alport and Postman. And, um, they pointed out a couple of really important things that we have to recognize that AI is doing now, but they were looking at the way humans do it. So they're pointing out one that gossip serves to create a sense of cohesion among various groups of people and to take a divisive stance against someone. So gossip yeah. actually becomes a social control mechanism that gives power to whoever is doing the gossiping. And uh, in humans, gossiping releases endorphins. It actually gives pleasure. Uh, hmm. People do, pe you know, people who propagate gossip are often doing it to help them escape from and some other unpleasant routine, from negative feelings and stress. <laughs> because so what happens? I'm now, I'm now picturing people, so I apologize to anybody if they can see what's happening in my head. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, and, and the thing is, the reason this helps them to get, uh, get to escape is because uh, when they're gossiping, they become the center of attention for the folks who are receptive to their rumors. Yep. And so 
Um, you know, the same thing is happening now. It's kind of like, you know, the Game of Thrones uh, Varys, right? Yeah. Yes. So he's really scary, right? He's a quidnunc. He, he's your, your archetypical quidnunc. But yes. our artificial quidnunks are potentially far more terrifying than, you know, that master of whispers. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned Cambridge Analytica. I mean, Cambridge Analytica is an artificial quidnunc. Yes. Um, and and the thing is that when you have these artificial quidnuncs, then, you know, like even Facebook or any, you know, company that is collecting this kind of information, uh, Amazon, et cetera, like the problem is that the gossip can unintentionally leak, right? Every single week, one of these companies, including Facebook and all the others, you know, there's yeah. news about how many hundreds of millions more records they accidentally um, leaked, right? Yes. Uh, this it happens just like with human quidnuncs, right? With a human quidnunc, they always leak, right? Somehow, there's, what there's they no learn gets out. There's no way to stop it. We're it's, creating it's so much hard, so quickly. It's really hard to keep a secret. Yeah. And so uh, now we've got great. We've got exponential amounts of information being leaked. Um, and if you think about, you know, Siri or Alexa or Cortana or, you know, Google Assistant, they're, they're all artificial quidnuncs. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying that these are being built for nefarious reasons. You know, they're clearly extremely it, useful. You're just defining them as you're defining them as what they are. Yeah, it's just it can be hard, super hard to avoid leaking what you overhear. Um. You know, there was that story a couple of months ago where Alexa recently accidentally spread an entire private conversation that it had overheard. Um, so the, these things will happen. And so today, you know, again, these are these are things not that we worry about happening decades from now. We have face a, a facing a choice whether to upload to the cloud or not. This is something that is already happening. And it has already happened for a while. We already exist today in a tangled yes. society of both human and artificial gossips. I think that's a challenge of the conversations I have with individuals as I try to share with them that we are already in a world of AI. Very much and so. No, 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 we're not. I said you're, the algorithm that drops down to give you a suggestion on a trip or a place or a word dictates it the map that comes out when you want to go someplace is telling you the directions to take it could have said avoid a mall because there's a mall that's someone else likes i mean there's so much going on that you are being it's not manipulated but you are being guided by ai already today yeah never underestimate the power of suggestion yep so uh, I'm going to I'm going to take this that you're saying to understand the challenge. We also have to understand these uh, uh, this artificial gossip. We don't know how to stop it yet, but we understand it. We're understanding the resource scarcity and we understand that and we're understanding it. So by understanding it, we're getting closer to being able to find a solution. Doesn't sound like we have one. Is the artificial children another category within that? Uh, it, it sort of is, uh, because, you know, uh, if, if we look at what we, where we've gotten until this point, right, basically, uh, 
the artificial gossips is what's really helping to drive the exponential divisiveness, the exponential tribalism that we were talking about, which is yeah. which is what's increasingly uh, meaning that we're facing an existential threat of an extinction event. And so the question is, what do we do about that? Right. Um, and of course, there are approaches that are rather draconian um, to to just like clamp down on artificial gossip on on this on what can be spread over technology. Um, but I think ultimately, it still boils down to us because the AIs are just amplifications of us, the humans, right? And so we still need to really think about well. What is it about us that is making us do these things? And what, it is, what is it that has helped us in the past to combat these age-old problems of gossips in our societies? And, and so, there, by the way, so there was this um, fascinating um, thing that I discovered, which is that the West pretty much... Uh, does not understand that ancient Chinese proverb that everybody's heard, which is see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. Right? You've heard that. Yep. Yes. Um, but in the West, that is pretty much always, in my experience, misused. Uh, it, it implies avoiding moral responsibility. It implies looking the other way, uh, which is a complete misunderstanding uh, that that proverb is actually a Buddhist summary of a Confucian tenet, and uh, let it, a more accurate restatement of this, taking this from a better translation, is: look not at what is contrary to propriety, listen not to what is contrary to propriety, speak not what is contrary to propriety, make no movement which is contrary to propriety. Think about that, mm -hmm. right? This is what second to fourth century uh, BC. What it's doing is it's reminding us to avoid dwelling on evil thoughts uh, and to delight instead in creating concord. If you now, it's not, by no means unique to Eastern philosophy, right? Marie Curie yeah. said, uh, "Be less curious about people and more curious about ideas." Um, we, these, these are the sort of directions that we need to find ways to amplify if we're going to succeed in this age of AI-driven cultural hyper-evolution. We also have to amplify the, these things. The, it, I guess the way I'm looking at it is we're going to need AI to solve AI. Yes, I, I that this is exactly because um, uh, we, we can't I figure mean, this out with on our with, own. with our <laughs> with just ourselves. Um, <laughs> we don't stand a chance at combating the exponential power of AI gossips being used the other way. We don't have the human capacity to understand the complications and the interconnectivity that is happening when it comes to all of these, not just gossip, but the 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 arming and disarmament of individuals and, and the capabilities. 
I I go to the uh, um what is it the game the AlphaGo uh huh the AlphaGo and I I'm assuming you're all this and the four or five games the computer won five out of four out of five and the people who were watching it being created said that they saw new iterations of the game that no one had ever seen before so therefore it was being creative it was creative in creating new games. I didn't know about this until recently that Alpha Next, about 40 or 50 days later, there's some timeline. I, uh, I'm propagating probably some fake news. But in 40 days, it learned the game and it beat the Alpha Go 100 to zero because it came up new ways to beat Alpha Go. Yeah. And then the Facebook, Facebook was having that computer simulation that was happening. And or the computer technology, they were trying to move two dots together to a certain point. And at some point during the experiment, the computer started creating a language that no one understood what was the computer was talking about. And they disconnected it because the computer was creating its own. So it's almost as if to solve this challenge, we have to use AI to find what we are not going to be able to see. We do have to. Um, that said, OK, I forgive me a, a small digression that last story about computers creating their own language um yeah you would know better than me that okay um that is the sort of story that drives ai researchers batty <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah i just used it <laughs> I, I mean it, here's the thing in machine learning there is, you know, it could be a neural network. It can be many other kinds of models. Whenever you're doing learning, you're creating inside the machine learning model new representations okay. of the situation that are useful in accomplishing whatever task you're learning to accomplish, whether it's prediction or whatever else, translation. And so... In a human, that is what your brain is doing as well. It's creating new representations for information that are more useful for making the right generalizations and the right predictions and solving the tasks that you're trying to learn. There, with, without creating new representation languages, there is no learning. Without creating new representation languages, there is only dumb, blind memorization. All you can do is record the facts, the input, and that's it. Any sort of generalization, any sort of intelligence, any sort of learning requires, by definition, creating new representation languages internally. So when a story like that comes out and a journalist sees, oh, wow, here's a clickbaity way to write about it. They're inventing their own secret language. <gasps> Ooh, scary. Skynet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then it goes viral. And then the entire world of AI research has a collective migraine. And after a, couple, oh, a month, yeah. it finally dies down. And we all breathe a collective sigh of relief. Oh, God, that nonsense went away. And then a few months later, journalist says hey i wonder what happened to that and then writes another story <gasps> look the university had finished that experiment so they stopped that experiment now 
and says they unplugged the machines that had created their secret language. And it goes all viral again. And migraine 2.0 happens. Oh my God. Stop, please. Well, I guess I guess we could say that there's maybe a different way to look at this, and this might be a lesson in the in AI space or in general, that learning doesn't happen without new input. Yeah. Or, or movement doesn't happen without new input. Yeah. You have to have some type of input. Yeah. You're sitting in the chair. You won't breathe unless your body gives you a signal you need to. You're running out of oxygen. You don't move your body unless you're sitting too long or there's a, a timer goes off or you know something in your head. There's always signals. And I always, uh, m- my context is if you want to create something new, you have to learn something new. Mm-hmm. And in learning something new, you create something new. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't have to be new to the world. It just could be new to you. So what you're saying here, it sounds like, is in order for computers to do what what humans do, they get input, they interpret it, they create a new set of acts, and that new set of acts creates the next information capability. So creating a language or creating some something that people don't understand doesn't mean that it was a runaway train. Absolutely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I mean, if you if you were to cut open uh, your brain, uh, there would be all sorts of representation languages happening in your brain that you, we don't understand. Yes. And I, I completely understand what you, what I just, I, I felt like a foot, uh, foot in mouth at the same time. I love how you analogized it to the learning experience and then my brain connected the dots and said okay you have a model or a belief belief is triggers triggers create new experience well the computer would do the same thing yeah so right. it makes sense okay so uh i, I want to go back to is there anything on the children that we well so should cover i, I think the question is uh that you raised is is the right question so that now what do we do about this problem so we've identified uh we've broken down some of the the deeper issues uh and and the the question is how do we combat this and i think there are two dimensions on how we try to counter the uh exponential risks that we're facing uh one is uh of course uh us humans right we humans do have to grow up uh, faster than we're doing uh, before the AI, the hyper-accelerated AI destructive capacity uh, wipes us out. And then the other half of that is, well, maybe how would AIs help us to do that? And in the first half, you know, I think we, we really do have to realize that AIs are just an amplification of ourselves. Right? We were just talking about how the way machine learning works is actually increasingly getting closer to the way human learning works. And we've got a, quite a ways to go, but uh, we are in the machine modeling very much already learning. And if you think about today's society, as we've just mentioned, AIs have already become very much integral members of our society, right? They've taken over so many of our human roles. Uh, There's 
probably more AIs now uh, than there are humans in our societies. Uh, because you know your your Facebook AI is really a different AI than my Facebook AI, right? They've learned very differently. They've been learning from different data. Um, your Facebook AI is learning from your environment. Mine is learning from my environment, and so on, right? And so, for each human uh, that has an account on any of these things, you've got an, an AI. Um, and these AIs are not just passive, right? As we've discussed, these AIs are actually already, even though we're far away from the singularity, even though we're far away from strong AI, mm-hmm. even these weak AIs are already influential, active, imitative, integral members of society, just like humans are. And they are learning. I mean, today, they're already deciding what ideas to share. We're just talking about what, what means to spread. Uh, they're deciding what attitudes to reward. More influentially than probably 90% of humans. And they're learning how to do that from watching us. They're observing not a good role model not a good role <laughs> i mean they, they're, well, maybe they're watching you they're not watching me okay maybe we could cut a distinction to that but not a good role model to be watching humans it's it's the old I mean, it's the star trek it's the yeah. star trek where we send these signals out into space and they realize that we're horrible creatures on this planet <laughs> except these ais are actually they don't know that yet okay Well, let's hope they don't find out soon. They're like any child. They're learning from uh, what Uh, they see you doing, and they're learning from what you ask it to do. And so So while you weren't watching, your AIs have already snuck up on you and adopted you. Yeah. So, So you, all of us, are parenting our artificial children already. And so the imprinting, the question, yeah, the the, the, the question, the key question here is, uh, how's your parenting? (laughs) Are you asking? (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. I mean, this is, this is, it's hard to overstate the ramifications. No, no, I, I, I completely get it. I completely get it. And it, I, I go, in my head, I'm going from the macro to the micro to the macro. So I'm utilizing when I get up in the morning, how many times I snooze, what sounds the computer is hearing when I eat my food, if I step on a scale, if I don't step on a scale, who do I talk to? Who do I text to? How do I text? Uh, how engaged am I? How late am I? How early am I? How prepared am I? What are the topics I talk about? What do I search? And because I've got, I'm an Android and a Mac user, uh, on both sides. So I've got my Chrome learning certain skills, which translates to my Samsung phone. And then it's crossing over to the Mac, which is looking at it from another AI perspective. Mm. I have, I, I'm just, I, my mind is racing of how, how my children are learning. Yeah. <laughs> wow. There's a lot going on. There's a, there's a lot, a lot going on. And, 
And this is going on even though the, these weak AIs are still very weak. Right? They're, they're, they're weak, but they're big and they're dumb, right? So they're big and dumb. And so we've got these big and dumb artificial children that are quickly reshaping the culture. And they're, the culture that they're reshaping is the culture that every generation successively of stronger AIs will be learning under. Yeah. Now, I mean, people, people have said to me, you know, that this, this can't possibly be true. You know, machines should be, you got to see machines as slaves. I have a colleague who's written entire treatises about this. Uh, machines aren't yet self-reliant. They're not self-replicating. They're not independent. Um, but, but here's the thing. None of those are required factors. You just think back to how much our societies have historically been influenced by the cultures of slaves, uh, by the cultures of eunuchs, you know, yeah. who are not self-replicating, or the cultures of colonies who are not independent. Nevertheless, super powerful evolutionary pressures on society have been exerted by these actors who aren't independent. And just like that, our machines culture will absolutely change us. And I, it's not a point to argue today, but there is no doubt in my mind that we will create an algorithm that will create an entity or will create a new, a new form of something that will be able to self-replicate itself in one way, shape, or form because we're already creating automatic AI generators. Yeah. And we're creating uh, automatic or AI cleaning technology so we can take a messy data and clean it. So there's nothing to say with the automatic AI generator that eventually it'll be smart enough, and let's use the term smart in a human sense, but not in a smart technological sense. It'll be capable. Maybe that's a better word. It'll be capable to create a version of something that allows it to be able, in in these 20,000 years as we talk about, very quickly, in a matter of a few uh, lifetimes in computer terms, it will be able to create something. Yeah. No doubt. Yeah, absolutely. And wow. and the thing and the thing here is that it's not, you know, the, the ramifications of this uh, are in the in the fact that these are machines that have opinions, and they can actively <laughs> shape our opinions, right? And the, you know, even in the first part of this discussion, where we're talking about the existential risks of AI and automation and destructive capacity, we were still thinking of them as machines, as mechanical tools, as passive slaves. And the thing is, we don't notice this fundamental difference when the machines have opinions and can shape our opinions. AI- You, you, just, you, you just stepped over a line. Yeah. You went, we talked about this entire time about AI, and you just talked about a live AI. Well, it's still very weak. You, I don't want to make claims of it, consciousness. You called it an opinion. You called it but an opinion. But it's an opinion. And once you said it was an opinion, it moved from my head from a tech to something that creates... I, I, I am writing an article right now that creativity is a, is a myth that computers won't be able to do, and you could probably argue the same point. Oh, so, yeah. Computational creativity is one of my research areas. I totally... Oh, my God. It's... That. It, I, I, I Vox in 2017 
started using software to generate videos so that they didn't have to, with no AI, with no human interaction. So when you watch a Vox video that goes on for 10 minutes, that might have been all created by AI. And that, therefore, that's creative because that's videography and that's journalism. And I, I can give a series and you can give the same. I, I know that. So, But yet when you referenced it, when you referenced AI, you referenced it as having an opinion. And to me, and can actively shape your opinions. Yes, and and that to me changed my entire view of AI. See, this is the problem that I have with the term "fourth industrial revolution." I mean, in some ways, it's a great term, but the thing is, it also reflects a mindset that I think is becoming out of date because it's a it, it it's a mindset that's stuck thinking of machines as passive tools, right? It's it's sort of there's a right. there's a comforting uh, idea implied in in that label that says, oh, this is the fourth industrial revolution. We we've managed three. We can take the lessons of history and apply them to the fourth. We 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 know how to do it. Um, but no, the industrial revolution was the automation of muscle. AI revolution is you, the automation of thought. You, you know the Project Moon Hut uh -huh. is the, we call it the age of infinite. Yeah. Different jump. What was that? You were going to say third one was the. I stopped you. I apologize. No. What would you call the third one? The automation of what? Um, no, I mean the first three in 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 this um, framing of AI as the fourth industrial revolution. All of the first three were about automation of muscle. Yeah, but you know the AI revolution, where we're it's about the automation of thought. It's not really the fourth of anything. It's the first. Uh, Do you like the unlike uh, the I, dynamics are I think unlike? Okay, uh, what we saw before because it's not only about automating muscle. Uh, sure, robots do some of that, but more importantly, it's about opinions, automation of thought, and so um, the, the this is not um, a situation where the analogies to past. Uh, approaches toward dealing with the social impact of mechanization can apply. So, so how do we how, how do how we, we jump yeah, to this how, this mindfulness? How do how do we quickly. deal with this? Um, yeah. So, you know, we we have to sort of. Um, so some people have have suggested that when we build AI systems we need something like a moral operating system, yeah. right? Um, it's kind of like uh, Isaac Asimov. Moral, to what, moral Isaac, to what culture? Oh, that, there's that, that too. Everybody's the yeah, same. we'll have to do with this. That'll take a separate episode to talk about. But, <laughs> um, but you know, like Isaac Asimov's um, classic Three Laws of Robotics, if you remember, it said, um, yeah. actually, yeah. actually, he added a fourth. So he added a zeroth law first, which is, that uh, a robot may not <laughs> harm humanity or by inaction allow humanity to come to harm, right? And then there was the first law, robot cannot injure a human being or through inaction allow the human to come to harm. Second law says a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings unless there's a conflict with the first law. And the third law says the robot has to protect its own existence as long as the protection doesn't conflict with the first two laws. Right now, here's the problem. You notice how legalistic this is. It's very rule-based. And so and the idea is 
we hardwire AIs with these ethical principles so they can't do the wrong thing. Problem with this whole approach, which people are still advocating, uh, a lot of people, is that it's a pipe dream. It can't, it cannot work. Um, oh, no, it's, there's no it's way. Not, it, first of all, it's, it's not just AIs that we need to fear. It's, it's human cultures. Um, it's human cultures armed with AIs. Um, these, I had, I had an AI person at the key club where I had a discussion about AI and the woman was arguing that computer, that computer scientists won't do the things that I was saying. And she couldn't, she said, we have rules against this. And I said, you're kidding me, right? (laughs) That some, some, some person in Mongolia or the States or China or any country of the 195 around the world, 193 plus the two others that fall into a different category. Someone in the world is going to do something that's contrary to any of those rules. Yeah. To pipe dreams. I mean, well, the, the other problem is this, and this is maybe even more important. I mean, this whole idea still comes from uh, an obsolete uh, picture of AI back from the 70s and the 80s, where AI was uh, logic-based, rule-based, you know, very much like a computer program is traditionally written. Right. And this is where all those Hollywood stereotypes come from, where a machine talks like this and it's very mechanical and has no sense of emotion or context and cannot understand anything which is not a logic rule. Right. So you get all of that kind of um, um, Spock like stuff, Mr. You know, Mr. Data like stuff. And yes. to this day, it's still in the movies, which also gives a lot of researchers and AI migraines all the time, because <laughs> modern... Do you need some aspirin? I, is that what you're asking for? Massive amounts. Uh, so like, the thing is that modern AI is all about machine learning. Um, the, it, I, I wrote one of the, the first PhDs way back then in the late 80s, early 90s, that was arguing that, no, we need probabilistic models that are learning models to build AIs that can really deal with human language, which is the foundation of human intelligence. Um, and uh, since then, the field has completely taken off in the machine learning direction. And critically, you cannot hardwire logical rules into machine learning any more than you can hardwire human kids. Because by definition, they're adaptive. They they so, learn the just, culture just around for, them. Just for the sake, just for the sake of context, because you and I are having this discussion, but someone might be listening. I can give definition of machine learning, but you're the expert in this. So can you give a very short summary of what is machine learning just so that the context is understood as to why sure. that one versus this one? I, I mean, machine learning is uh, of course the machines that are doing learning much as a human does learning. And and today it's hard for many people to remember that AI for decades up until the 90s was dominated by the opposite paradigm where uh, the, intelli- the quote intelligent behavior was the result of humans actually writing programs that would do the, the tasks that the AI system was supposed to do. The AI system never learned how to do those tasks. You actually wrote the complete recipes for how to do those tasks just like you know, cookbooks do, and yes. and there was no learning going on, and so for some of us, 
that was just so clearly wrong. It's unscalable. And the models that were totally based on logic could not handle degrees of, of gray. Everything was black and white zeros and ones. Um, it, they, they clearly weren't going to solve the AI problem by themselves. Um, and so we needed to bring in uh, alternative mathematical modeling approaches that A, would be sensitive to you know, statistical correlations the way that human kids are and gradually learn by seeing statistically relevant patterns, right? And so all these models become probabilistic. They become um, uh, driven by continuous math instead of Boolean logic. And, uh, and neural nets are examples and many other machine learning uh, models are examples. And so the, the slogan is sort of to don't, don't model the task uh, when you're writing an AI. Instead, model the mind. Don't, don't, mod, don't try to write programs that model the whole world. You're never going to finish. And it's all going to be wrong because it captures no contextual shades of gray. It's really bad at dealing with ambiguity, which is all, all over us, uh, which is all through our languages. Right? You need to have a model of the mind that is adaptive, context-sensitive, and learns. Um, so that's kind of what machine learning models are, and that's what's created the AI revolution that we're experiencing today, because that works. And let me, I don't know if this is exactly the case, but to, to give it, I think my history or memory is that there's in learning there's supervised unlearned unsupervised and reinforced yeah but so is that still the same you you, you this i mean cup, th this those could be those could be useful um uh uh rough categorizations of learning algorithms but it, they're uh it, you know there are a lot of important types of learning where you can see it either as supervised or as unsupervised. Um, okay. And likewise for reinforcement learning. I mean, those are just kind of theoretical notions that help us to roughly group different families of learning algorithms. But um, yeah, not not to digress on that um, too much. Okay, no, I just, uh, yeah, I wanted to give context to, to, and I think those words even helped and you just described that they could cross over, there could be models and versions of it. And that was, a, that's a simplistic way of looking at it. So let's get back to that topic. How do we solve? So, he, so, he, so, you know, given that we, we cannot hardwire logic rules into machine learning, right? Because, because your machine learning model, model of the mind, right? So you can't exactly unscrew that top of the head of a human kid and, and like solder in some logic rules. That's not how it works. There's no place to put it. Um, they're massive collections of neurons and, the, and they're constantly adaptive. There's no line of code that says uh, kill a human that you can like try to disable, right? Um, all the information is represented in dynamic activation patterns across large numbers of neurons or artificial neurons. Um, and they're just learning the culture that they're surrounded by, the data that's coming in. Uh, so what do we do then? Because what that means is that whether they're machines or humans, whether they're artificial or human children, 
the morals and ethics and values have to be culturally learned and sustained. It's the same for humans and machines. So here, the key question is, what culture do we need to be teaching our AIs if we don't want ourselves to destroy each other, armed with that mushrooming AI power we were talking about? And the culture, and, and I like how you said dystopian versus utopian, because there are a lot of people who believe that AI might bring a utopia to the world, and I'm I'm doubtful of that. Yeah. So you know, if we want to answer this question about the culture that we need to be teaching our artificial children, well, I mean, let's just think about what you would teach uh, if if you have human children. Uh, you you want a you want a world where you can evolve in a healthy and peaceful way, um, multiple cultures so the cultures are co-evolving uh, under a situation of constructive continual generation and evaluation of new ideas and new means. Um, you want the cultures to support healthy generation of a wide variation of these ideas, and to do that we need to raise artificial children, AIs, to value diversity and creativity and respect and open-mindedness. That's what enables a wide variation of ideas and means to get generated in the first place. But at the same time, for our cultures to support healthy evaluation, to yield a sound selection of ideas and means, we also need to raise our artificial children to value fact-based empiricism and reasoned, informed judgment. And, and so compare this with how you are parenting your artificial child. Right? Think about creative diversity of opinion. What we're raising our AIs to do today is pretty much the opposite. We're teaching our AIs to build echo chambers where we comfortably hear only our existing perspectives. Because every time you click like or favorite or share or retweet, we're teaching our AIs that we only want to listen to ideas and memes that we already agree with. Mm -hmm. We don't have buttons for, hmm, might this be right? Or could this be onto something? Or, you know, not sure I agree, but it's an interesting thought. Is that how you would teach your kids, your human kids, to ignore or to suppress any viewpoints other than your own? I come from a culture where we talk about over the table at the same time as everybody else. We challenge adults. <laughs> we uh, look at the world and question so much. And education is a, a core uh, belief structure that a lot in the way in which I grew up. So I would think that, yes, we would like to have, and I like these ideas of these other buttons. They're fantastic. Uh, I, I, yeah, we would, my mind is racing around the world. We, we would hmm. want to, we would want to have, so, you know, and, and what enables that uh, kind of dynamic you're just talking about is open-mindedness and respect, right? And the problem here is again, today we're raising our artificial children to do the opposite. So, you know, there are those really obvious examples, like when users deliberately taught Microsoft Tay to be offensive and racist um, yep, yep. two times in a row. <laughs> um, 
but 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 that's extreme, right? The thing is that even on normal days, we're constantly teaching our artificial children to reward trolls and to reward yes. offensive insults and hate speech and so on, because those posts get more views, more likes, more fame. And we don't have buttons for uh, this is not a very respectful way to communicate or maybe reword this, please. And so, again, would you teach your human children such vindictive closed mindedness? Well, and I think we even have an extremism in that. So let's use Instagram or LinkedIn, where you look at uh, I post articles and I post quotes and I post other information. And I know that when an article, I might be interested in it, but I don't look at it uh, at that time or the moment. So I'll say I'll get to that later. So I didn't do anything, even though it was a value to me because I didn't do anything. The computer doesn't know that if I see a quote. I might grab the screen before I'll forward it. And I know people have told me they do that to my quotes is they'll forward it. So I, it doesn't even show that you're interacting with it. And there's so many times that you just scroll past it and say, wow, that's great. So we're even teaching the computers to go extreme. We either like it or we dislike it, even though normally we're saying, oh, that's nice. That's average. Right. So we're not even teaching averages and normalcy. We're teaching extremism. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. And and you we're know, teaching extremism. So, so like we're 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 doing even even, you know, like the best of us are constantly teaching our artificial children exactly the opposite of what we would teach our human children. Right. And, and, and so like also consider, you know, well, the you're other making part, an assumption the, there. You're making a huge assumption. Because I, I've got to believe there are families who are teaching. You don't like this group. You don't like that group. Those are out of the country. These are people that are, uh, I mean, I've got to believe there are families doing that. Too. I, I did say even the best of us. Okay. <laughs> um, the, uh, okay. I, I'll give you that one. The, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and, and that extends also to um, the, uh, you know, the, the other half of of what we would want for a healthy co-evolution of cultures uh, on the planet that in a survivable way, right? Which is sound and informed judgment. Um, so, again, you know, we're raising our artificial children to do the opposite. We're, we're not teaching. So are you telling me we're going to use AI to to uh, to to kind of break it down? Just we, we've been having a long conversation, which I love. I just. Are we, tell, are we going to use computers to teach the computers to tell it to do? Are we going to add new emoticons? Are we going to... What are the things that we do? Is there anything we can do today besides trying to be nicer to our computer? Oh, well, no, absolutely. Today, that is what we should do. That is what okay. we absolutely need to do. That. Right. I mean, we've talked about fake news. I mean, false, false memes account already for the majority of what AI has learned that it should circulate. Right. Um PolitiFact and other fact-checking websites have been tracking this for a, a decade. Uh, PolitiFact rated 47% of shareable Facebook memes as either false or liar, liar, pants on fire. <laughs> and only 20% as true or even mostly true. And for, and for yeah. chain emails, it's even worse. It's like 83% are false or pants on fire. But, uh, only 7% are true or mostly true. I don't forward. I don't do that. No, but one of the challenges that what, I've run into. But what you don't have, I've run into this this 
a abundance of content. So when I see an article and I'm researching something and I look at it and I read, I say, wow, I didn't realize this was happening. And I say, wait, 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 let me see the date of this, 2011. Mm-hmm. It's post-crisis. Mm-hmm. So I don't even know what I'm reading because the the infinite amount of material is also overwhelming me. Um, yeah, no. And even if you find something that you know is false, you don't have a button that for no. this is factually wrong or here is the evidence for why you should not make this viral. Now, these are all things that you raising your human child would teach. And yet we are not teaching our artificial children that are exponentially more big and dumb. So, I, I, so what can we do today? Yeah. One of the one of the primary things that we can do today, all of us can do today, is to start taking our parenting responsibilities seriously. Every single one of us has to actually start start parenting, not just using our AIs. Now, you are, before you, you say, are you are a nice person to I know what you're going to say. And before <laughs> you say that, let me just point out one thing. All right, you're you're you're, you're going to tell me humans, you know, they they're going to like just not understand. They're not going to do this. Humans are even if, you know, why why are humans not immediately receptive to this idea that they need to parent their AIs responsibly. It's because today, the way that the AI narrative is being shaped, today, people are still thinking of them as passive slaves, as machines. They're not taking them as children that need to be yeah. parented. Yeah. But, but you're at, imagine, you're an awareness but, think about, but think of, you know, and, and people say, you know that's ridiculous. What you know, even if I did what you're saying and I parented my AI correctly, there are you know seven and a half billion people on the planet. There are billions of other kids, and so what difference will it make how I parent my artificial child? But I want to ask you one thing: Have you ever heard? Have you ever heard any human parent say? What difference does it make how I parent my child? There are billions of children in the world. It makes no difference how I parent my child. I No, I have not. If we had approached parenting that way. Actually, I have. <laughs> so, wait, I, I have. That is scary. We live in Hong Kong. We, we live in Hong Kong, too. We give other people the responsibility of parenting. People give responsibility to other people to parents or child. Hmm. Uh Another a different conversation. We'll have that conversation yep. a, a different. But yep. but here's the thing: if humanity had that mindset, what difference does it make how I parent my child? We would have gone extinct long ago. Humanity would have destroyed itself long ago. The only thing that's kept us going up until now is because every human parent actually does take responsibility for parenting their child properly. I don't disagree with you on the conceptual side. It would be a phenomenal experience if we made that happen. So mine, 
and I, we don't have time for it today. I'd love to have this conversation at another point. And if you're interested in the help and some of the projects you're working on, obviously I'm very interested. The, this is a question to me, maybe it's not to you, I'm assuming it would be, mm. of the speed of indoctrination, the speed of acceptance, the speed of uh, understanding. And I don't know if it's, I, I, I'm not so confident that humans can embrace that AI is a child. I think they can conceptually understand it. And yet they're still going to get drunk on Friday night. Uh, or they're still going to <laughs> Which do- Which are to their plus. human children too. No, yeah, nobody's so perfect. I, We're far from perfect. Right. I, I, I'm just looking at speed. But I, I, so, I got to tell you, okay. I gave this uh, message in a, in a TEDx talk uh, a, a couple of years ago. And uh, last year, uh, a couple from a far distance saw me at some point, and they ran up to me. Dakai, Dakai, they said, um, you know, we just wanted to tell you that we, we heard you talk about this uh, a year ago. Um, and... We wanted to let you know that ever since then, we have been speaking incredibly respectfully to our Alexa and our Siri. And that is so <laughs> important to us. So, so the question you should ask is, what were you doing before? Well, have you heard the way people talk to Alexa and Siri? No, I haven't, oh but I'm now, now it I'm is wondering. so abusive. Okay, <laughs> I, I'm actually thinking of our mobile phone and the use, words we use and the way in which we search and the way in which we migrate. And I think that teaching Alexa, the Alexa becomes part of the family. You talk to Alexa, it asks questions. Maybe as we get uh, user interfaces become more voice oriented, then the capabilities will be enhanced where we'll have to make different choices. I'm thinking of just the texting and the pieces and the usage and the caps and the and the emoticons that we use. So, I the Kai, I love this. I could go on and on and on with this. This is this is fantastic. And what I'm I'm going to do is we're going to break it here. If we would like to pick this up and do the uh, another follow up with something, uh, this is called redefining tomorrow. This is redefining tomorrow. And I'd like to find a, I'd, I'd even like to find or help you find some solutions to some of the challenges and the way you brought them up. Th this was fantastic. Love that. I, I thank you for having I me. had a great time. It was wonderful. So, As yeah, it was fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being, uh, I, I say on the program, but thank you for talking with me because I learned a tremendous amount. And I'm hoping that uh, other people have felt the same. So, um, my, the th I always give the three, the three prayer symbols or whatever the, the thank yous. So I'm giving that to you as an emoticon on a video, on an audio. So yeah, thank you. Uh, okay. So I, uh, wanted to thank everybody today who listened in and, and heard the conversation. I hope that you learned something from today that'll make a difference in your life and the lives of others. And let me expand on that today. Let's make, let's say we say, hope you learn something today that will make a difference in your life, the lives of others, and the AI that you're growing or teaching or developing. So uh, 
Always remember, you can't fix yesterday. You can only create tomorrow. So let's work on tomorrow and let's make that an amazing time for not only us, but for our children and their children, the children after that, and every other species on this planet if we want to go further. So love to connect. To, if you'd like to connect, uh, text David at David Goldsmith, uh, email David David Goldsmith.com. You can Instagram. I've got Mr. David Goldsmith. You can connect on Twitter at David Goldsmith, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, I'm all there. And Dakai is spelled D E K A I. Correct? Yes. And I'm at Dakai123 uh, on Twitter. Dakai123 on Twitter. So I'm David Goldsmith. And thank you for listening.